Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, we all know him now. Kevin Walsh joins us now, the former Fed governor. Kevin, always great to catch up with you, sir. I just want to go back to February and start there if we can. The Fed can't wait to respond to the coronavirus. That was you in the Wall Street Journal in late February, I think pretty much Every single one of us on this program agreed with you. Now the conversation has switched almost 180. Has the Fed stepped in too far? Has the Fed done too much? Kevin, how do you respond to that now? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Good to be, Tom, uh, with you and Jonathan. Um, so I'd say a few things. First, when the regime changed in February of this year, that's the job of the central bank to be super aggressive. And the earlier you can be aggressive, frankly, the less you have to do later. Uh, so they moved not with the speed I would have liked, but in historically speaking, pretty quickly. When you look at where they are now, they seem to be moving with overwhelming force. They seem to be incredibly aggressive, even as risk assets are at uh, incredible highs. I wish that same aggressiveness were being uh, felt in the policies they were putting on Main Street. In Main Street, their policies seem to be late, delayed, cumbersome, and frankly, not terribly effective. So that chasm between the aggressiveness to push up risk assets and push down bond spreads doesn't seem to be matched on Main Street. Do you think the focus on one over the other right now is leading to market malfunctioning. They say that every single point objective is about market functioning. I just wonder whether the efforts now are impairing market functioning, Kevin. Yeah, it's a uh, listen, it's hard for me to say with a straight face that markets aren't functioning well. And that rationale for policy action was uh, astute 60 or 80 days ago. It's really hard for me to say that the aggressive policies, the doubling of the Fed balance sheet, entering bond markets that we never thought about entering uh, in the last crisis, that we're doing that because markets aren't functioning now, that, that, that explanation isn't great. And my own judgment is monetary policy matters at least as much for the reasons it gives as the decisions it makes. So I think that that rationale is certainly in need of some updating. And if I look at what's happening in markets, with the Fed having this kind of massive imprimatur on financial markets, it's easy to see how they're moving around financial assets. But what ultimately matters, Jonathan, is what you said at the beginning is what about the real economy? And again, it doesn't appear to me as though uh, much of this is trickling down to the real economy in a meaningful way from the Federal Reserve. Well, Kevin, is that the Fed's job? I mean, the Main Street lending program is very new for the Fed because they're going to be taking on credit risk and be becoming responsible for deciding who to lend to, how to lend to them, when to force some companies into bankruptcy. Should the Fed even be doing this or does the responsibility lie elsewhere? So the responsibility really lies in the Congress to come up with what can be done on the real side of the economy. They outsource that responsibility to the Treasury Secretary and the Exchange Stabilization Fund. And then the Treasury took much of their authority and devoted it to the Federal Reserve to stand up this Main Street credit facility. Jonathan was kind at the beginning to talk about a Wall Street op-ed I wrote. I wrote about this Main Street credit facility with a much worse name than, than they gave it about three months ago. And what my principle there was is something they frankly haven't adopted, which is uh, provide uh, ample and immediate liquidity to all solvent comers on Main Street 
with immediate effect against good collateral. But that's not the way the Main Street credit facility works, at least as they've iterated it now several times. I think you're right, Lisa. It's not the Fed's job to be deciding on every loan. But the good news is they happen to regulate 5,000 banks. It is their job. And so, again, if I were to have designed that facility, as I wrote about 80 days ago, uh, the Fed would have regulated the banking institutions who would have provided loans to their typical clients against good collateral based on their solvency before the crisis. And the only job the Fed would have would be to ensure that the banks would have done proper underwriting. If they would have underwritten a loan to a widget manufacturer in Toledo on February 1st, and they follow those same underwriting standards, then that's a good loan. Any losses that might be had, and surely they might, those losses would be offset by the money that the Treasury Department had granted to the Federal Reserve. I prefer that kind of immediate and ample liquidity to this kind of picking and choosing and to see the aggressiveness again in, in financial markets and the lack of aggressiveness, the slowness of response in Main Street, it makes me actually quite concerned about the real economy. Well, let's talk about what is going to happen in the future, uh, not perhaps uh, just taking a look at what they should have done. You wrote in a recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that if policymakers get next steps wrong, 2020 will look a lot like 2008 in terms of the sanguine feeling right now turning into catastrophe later in the year. Do you see policymakers on that path right now? So, you know, we should begin with uh, what Chairman Powell's uh, word is of the moment, uncertainty. We have to have epistemic humility about what we know and epistemic humility about uh, the efficacy of these policy tools. You know, I'd feel a lot better, Lisa, about the state of play and the risks over the second half of the year if we had used the decade before this crisis putting our own house in order. Uh, Chairman Powell said how it would have been better if Congress had been more fiscally responsible in the decade between these crises, so it would have plenty of flexibility and plenty of credibility to provide massive increases in debt. I think the same is true of the Federal Reserve. Had the uncertainty principle, which they talk about frequently now, been what they talked about between 2010 and 2020, the Fed would have come into this process with a lot more traditional ammunition. It wouldn't be having to reach into all these new markets with uncertain effects. So as I look at the second half of the year, Lisa, what I'd say is a W looks a lot like a V until it turns out to be a W. And none of us really know the contour of this economy. I guess what I'd say as a final word on this, if you were to take an Olympic swimmer and a novice swimmer like me, and you locked us down at the bottom of the pool, and then you finally unlocked us, well, we'd both be racing up to the surface at some point. But that wouldn't really help us understand who was the Olympic swimmer who was ready to go do 100 laps and who was the guy just trying to get his head above water. Kevin, I've got this image of you in Stanford's water polo team just getting <laughs> it done out there against Pepperdine. I can just see it coming. Kevin, you are identified more than any economic official and policy official with Republican politics and, of course, the storied family you married into. I don't know if you grew up on third base, but you're decidedly living on third base. From your view and with the honesty you've had for decades, are we moving ourselves towards an ever more gilded age is the price of all this funny money and policy that in 2025 or 2030, we are going to be ever more unequal? 
Well, Tom, I should first disabuse you of your visual, uh, not least of me on the water polo team. I can hardly swim. And, uh, and I grew up in a regular family in uh, upstate New York and uh, have parents that are probably so excited to be watching you on TV right now. But in terms of the substance of the question, which is really where at this moment of consequence, we really should be focused. I would say because we've had an aggressive central bank not least in times of crisis where we need a central bank to be an emergency authority, but in ordinary times, treating that like it is an emergency, like we've had an emergency every day since the darkest days of 2008. These kinds of aggressive policies do lead to misallocations of capital, do lead to financial assets that trade better than real assets. And there's a certain unfairness to that. So that's why this is no time to be trying to have a philosophical discussion inside the four walls of the Fed. But the idea that they should have been fine-tuning between 2010 and 2020 instead of thinking ahead towards what are the risks, you end up with policies now that I'm afraid do tend to take the income inequality and more important, balance sheet inequality, and we make it somewhat unfair. Half of our fellow Americans have not been able to benefit because they don't have equity in a 401k plan or in stocks. They don't have equity in their house. So as they look at the run up in these markets, they ask themselves the question, what's in it for me? And that's why, again, the Fed's focus should yeah. be on the real economy and will let financial markets take care of themselves. Kevin, I'll get told off for squeezing one more question in, but I've got to. That's the comment on monetary policy. What about fiscal and making sure the House was in order there? You touched on that. Is that another way of saying that tax cut a couple of years back was a mistake? So what I'd say is um, fiscal policy has a certainly important role to play. But Jonathan, too much of the discussion is how big should the next stimulus bill Frankly, the size of these stimulus packages mean a lot less or a lot less important than the design of them. So when I think about tax policies then and tax policies today, tax policy and fiscal policy more, more broadly needs to be designed to encourage investment back in the services sector of the economy, back in the real side of the economy instead of financial flows chasing the S&P at these historic levels. So as I think about the next stimulus bill, which they say will be somewhere between the 4th of July recess and August, my encouragement, my, my uh, overlying counsel, I would say, to the authors of that yeah. is make sure that there's incentives for real people to re-engage back in the workforce because they've been displaced and real investment find its way into real property, plant, and equipment. Again, I shouldn't say this in front of a news show where so many of your, your listeners are investors. We get the real economy to do the right thing, and I don't worry about. I don't really worry about the S and P. Kevin, I had a feeling I might not get a straight answer to that question, but I appreciate your response nevertheless. Kevin, always great to catch up with you, sir. Kevin Walsh, the former Federal Reserve Governor. Let me say right now, this is my book of the summer. There's no question about it. Yes, I mentioned Ragan Rajan the other day, his book on community, The Third Pillar. But Richard Haas has written a jewel called The World, A Brief Introduction. Ambassador Haas, thank you for jumping back on with us again today. You end your book on order and disorder. Where are we right now? Good morning, Tom. Unfortunately, most of the uh, arrows are pointing in the direction of greater disorder. It was already true before the pandemic, and what the pandemic has done is essentially accelerated uh, the pace of history. 
So whether it's U.S.-Chinese relations deteriorating or the increase in poverty around the world or the increase in the number of refugees, you could go on and on and on. But so far, at least, this is a cloud without a silver lining. Richard, if we can talk about some of the immediate friction in the last couple of days, I think a lot of people are trying to work out what it all means, particularly market participants that might be willing to disregard this. Can you just talk about the significance of what has happened between India and China in the last 48 hours? Yeah, this, these are the world's two most populous uh, countries. They've had a uh, essentially undemarcated border, the line of actual control now uh, forever. They fought a war over this, what, 60 years ago. And you've got two armies cheek by jowl. And I don't think either government necessarily wanted to have it come to blows. But any time you have large groups of soldiers over contested areas, uh, there's that, that risk. Both countries now are increasingly nationalist, and we're seeing this as a trend where, you know, whether it's to distract uh, because of problems with the coronavirus or its economic aftershocks. So this was something that, that could have happened. It just did. I think the real question now is whether both countries essentially the government step in and calm things down. Uh, you, won't, you won't have any solution, but the question is simply whether you have some kind of a mutual pullback. Do you sense that de-escalation is the path forward at this point? I think it's more likely than not, uh, from what I can see. What was so interesting about the fighting was how almost, pardon the word, almost primitive, with clubs and fists. I mean, there was a kind of hand-to-hand combat we haven't seen since times almost like the Korean War. Uh, so this was really, really localized. So, yeah, if I were a betting man, I would bet nah, that, that there's a pullback. You don't see anything like a, a, a full-scale uh, war. That would be my bet. Well, Richard, the hand-to-hand combat you're talking about perhaps is why some people are shrugging it off, saying, well, at least it's not a nuclear threat, right? But over in North and South Korea, you have the prospects of some sort of altercation picking up after the bombing in North Korea of a South Korean uh, diplomatic uh, diplomatic entity. I'm just wondering if there is a broader takeaway for all of these percolations of geopolitical tensions that are happening now. You said we're fast-forwarding history. Is there some broader takeaway about leadership in the modern world? Well, one I just alluded to, that leadership is, is pressed and is looking for you know, wag-the-dog kind of safety valves. The other possibility is, you know, look, look at the United States. We've got COVID, we've got the protests, we've got the economic problems, and it's quite possible that countries around the world are looking to take advantage of a divided and distracted United States. So North Korea, you know, might see this as an opportunity to pressure the South to relieve sanctions. The U.S.-North Korean talks have gone nowhere. North Korea wants economic uh, relief. The U.S.-South Korean relationship is bad because the U.S. has been hammering them. So it's quite possible the North Koreans decided to put pressure on the South to see if they couldn't cut a separate deal. You know, Richard Haas, I know you know, and this is the legacy of the Wright brothers and how they planted the Department of Physics at Oberlin College. And I know you went to (laughs) physics at Oberlin straight A's. You know from your Oberlin physics ambassador, yeah, physics for poets, you know as an Oberlin physics giant that there's a vacuum out there, and the vacuum out there is President Trump in his foreign policy. What happens after one-term Trump or two-term Trump when we try to close that vacuum of foreign policy? Well, I think there is a vacuum. Uh, there has been a pattern of serial withdrawal from the world, a combination of isolationism and unilateralism on the part of the United States. Uh, at the moment, the vacuum is not so much being filled as, as it's being allowed to fester. So you don't see China's not in a position to fill it. The Europeans would like to, but they lack the power. 
Uh, it's more likely things just get messier. So for people, you know, from a business point of view, the United States doing less is a, uh, you know, we've been in some ways the, the general contractor of global order for, for generations on uh, now. I think there's also, though, a big difference between a one and a two term Trump presidency. Uh, two terms, uh, I think American alliances might not uh, survive it, or if they survive it, they would be fairly uh, empty. Uh, a one term Trump presidency, I think. President Biden would try to restore things. The problem is he will inherit, if he is elected, a country that really wants to face inward to deal with our domestic challenges, and he will inherit one of the most daunting, demanding inboxes any president has inherited. And that combination means that it won't be easy for anyone, no matter what his intentions are, to to turn things around. It'll be difficult. Richard Haas, always great to get your thoughts and perspective and your insight on this program. Thanks for joining us today. The Council on Foreign Relations President and author of the New York Times bestseller, The World, A Brief Introduction. Edward Morse of Citigroup, definitive on commodities and oil. Ed, let me ask the direct question. Give us an update on the war, the microeconomic oil war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Well, that war is kind of over for a while. There's a truce that's been imposed partly by uh, Donald Trump, partly by the follies that were associated with their actions in March. Um, so they're coming back to reality. Each country is seeing a tremendous drop in capital spending, uh, and they're, they're, they're tightening their belt for another day. I don't think we're going to see the levels of production that we saw from either of these countries again until the middle of, the next, of this coming decade. Ed, I want to talk about the price of oil, which has been so hard to get right for a lot of this year. It went from a demand story to a supply story with all the cuts, and now perhaps back to a demand story as Beijing closes its schools and we see a pickup in virus cases in places like Florida and Texas and the United States. What do you see going forward in terms of demand that could potentially send oil prices well below where they are currently at $37.81 traded on the NYMEX? Well, when we look at the dynamics between the supply and the demand side now, uh, actions taken voluntarily, involuntarily in the United States, Canada, uh, all of the OPEC countries and uh, and the non-OPEC countries associated with them, those supply actions are going to dominate. Uh, no matter what happens, we're moving from a period of record inventory uh, accumulations and builds to what is going to be a period of very strong, if not record, inventory draws. Uh, the cuts are not being seen yet. We're still seeing inventories growing in the United States. Uh, the API data yesterday had a growth in inventories. I bet it'll be a bigger number today with the EIA. And that's because of the armada of tankers that were sent out by Saudi Arabia and others of these countries in March, April, uh, and in the beginning of May. So we're seeing you know, uh, cuts that are real. Those cuts uh, are taking four or five million barrels a day out of the market. Um, and, uh, and the demand increases are there. I mean, even with the second wave hitting China, the underlying de- demand factors are just not as strong as the supply factors. Edward Morse, with the many equilibria of the supply and demands of oil, where's the optimum price right now? I have no idea where a barrel should be. What's the should of oil right now? $50 well, a barrel? Be- 
Yeah, I'll try to be brief. Uh, it, it really relates to the cost structure of the world, the cost curve for oil. Uh, and if we look at the data that have come in, costs are still going down. Uh, so we're, we're in a 40 to $45 environment if this were a market that were working the way the market should be working. Uh, and I, that's where we expect it to, eat, uh, to eventually uh, get to. But there are a lot of, lots of lumpy inventory in the middle to try to sort that one out. Ed Morse of City, the head of global commodity research. Ed, always great to catch up with you to get your perspective, sir. Right now, Julia Coronado joins us. She's out of the University of Richard Clarida. That would be Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, and of course, out of Texas and Austin as well. Dr. Coronado, are you forecasting this economy as a natural disaster recovery or are you trying to treat it as a normal recessive recovery? Um, let me say it's a bit of a hybrid of both. And in fact, one of the problems with the natural disaster analogy is that the natural disaster is still with us. Uh, and I am in Texas, I'm sheltering in Texas right now, Tom, and we're seeing escalating cases of COVID and we're opening up and yet we're gonna live with this disease. So as businesses, as consumers, we have to make our decisions knowing that there is this deadly disease swirling around out there. So that makes it very difficult to go back to normal. And that makes it quite different from a hurricane. This is not something that's going away. It is something that resurges when we open up. And then we all have to make these risk management decisions. Businesses have to make them, consumers have to make them. And that's what's gonna make this very difficult to get back to normal. That's gonna mean some businesses are still gonna go out of business despite the fiscal support uh, because they just won't be viable at 50% capacity or 75% capacity. So I think there's a lot of frictions that lie ahead of us. What is your glide path then for the unemployment rate? We've seen a horrific number. Now we have a recovery tomorrow, folks. We get the jobless claim statistic again. Give us those glide paths in terms of the U3 unemployment rate into the end of the year. What's it look like? Well, the U3 is probably even itself one of the more problematic measures of unemployment because we know we've Agreed. lost a tremendous amount of people that have dropped out of looking for work right now because things were shut down. We don't know how many of them will come back or when. Um, and what we're seeing is a tremendous amount of churn. That's what claims is telling us. We've got millions of people newly unemployed. These are not people that were uh, sidelined during that first phase of shutdowns. These are new unemployment. That's probably more permanent uh, job losses. Meanwhile, we know there's millions of people reconnecting with their employers as things do open up. So this just tremendous churn makes it more difficult to get a read. We saw net job creation. I think that will probably continue. Uh, and then the question for the unemployment rate is, do people leap back in and try to find, you know, start looking for jobs, which could actually push the unemployment rate up? We also know, by the way, there's a significant measurement problem that the BLS is grappling with that led to an understatement of the U3 unemployment rate by several percentage points uh, in May and even more in April, they are redesigning their survey to try and address that, which means we could get a pop in the June unemployment rate just because they're resolving that measurement issue. So I think we're going to have some bumps along the road, some ebbs and flows in the unemployment rate. I think 
like the Fed best guesses will still be close to 10% by year end. That's not an unreasonable forecast given the magnitude of the number of people sidelined. Julia, a consensus has emerged for the pragmatist, the group of economists who believe coming out of a shutdown, you get that initial sharp bounce. And then the real long slog, the big recovery ahead begins. One thing I've struggled with over the last couple of days, and I'm just trying to establish, Julia, and I would love your help on that, the dividing line between the sharp bounce out of the reopening and then that recovery, the longer slog that many people anticipate, is that an August right. event, a late July event, a September event? What's the dividing line? Some, uh, some of that depends, Jonathan, on Congress and how much they do in terms of this phase four. So we know that, for example, the unemployment benefits end in July. Uh, we know that the PPP gave small businesses two and a half months of payrolls, which is running out uh, now. And so whether or not we get a new tranche of unemployment benefits and funding for small businesses and maybe another round of checks, that could extend the bounce period, right? That could mean more. We, we know that we've seen the footprint of that stimulus in retail sales, in the jobs numbers. That's exactly what it's intended to do. But there may be some complacency. It, it does seem like a consensus is forming to get the phase four done. Uh, it's just a question of how big and how many, uh, what, 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 what the elements will be. The other big pothole coming is in the fall, which is a big hiring season for teachers and state and local employees. And we know that they are on the mat. Their budgets are crushed. They have already been letting go millions of workers. Uh, and so that's going to be a challenge for that fall typical fall hiring season uh, will probably be disrupted. So I think it's going to be rather than sort of bounce, there's going to probably be several bounces and fades uh, as we move along this recovery path. Well, Julia, I want to talk about the economic misses in terms of economic projections from Wall Street analysts. This is unprecedented. Yeah, yesterday's surprise in the retail sales to the upside was dramatic, more than double what was expected are economic models broken at this point? Not just economic models, Lisa. Um, actually, measurement is also broken. So we know, and actually the census in the release yesterday, they said they haven't been able to survey lots of businesses that have shut down or gone out of business. So I think one of the things we're seeing in the numbers, for example, for jobs, uh, for the employment report, which also relies on surveys and any of these government statistics that rely on surveys, there's going to be a bit of an upward bias because distressed companies and distressed people don't answer surveys. So we get maybe even a, a upper end of the truth, a rosier picture of the truth that will be revised over time as we benchmark to harder underlying data. So I think that's we knew coming into this that measurement was going to be disrupted, that getting our arms around the magnitude of this is is was going to be really, really tricky given how unprecedented it is. So that we're seeing noise in the data was expected and, and anticipated. And in fact, we even anticipated that the surprises would be bigger than anything we'd ever seen. So that's exactly what we're in the middle of right now. Julia, let's push this a little bit further. If this is expected and there is an upside bias to the data being collected, is there anything in the high frequency information that you're looking at that gives you a sense of how much worse things are? 
Yeah, so um, that's triangulating is the name of the game. And so, yeah, looking at all kinds of sources of data, things like um, uh, ADP are helpful in this environment and actually jobless claims themselves. That's hard numbers. Now we know there's been even there some processing delays and some program, it, you know, uh, challenges for state and local governments getting these programs up and running. So uh, those aren't per pinpoint perfect, but they're probably more reliable. Um, they don't capture everything. They don't capture the flow back into employment as timely as um, say maybe ADP does. But yeah, we're looking towards all any kinds of high frequency, real uh, measurement-based uh, data that we can. Um, and again, the, the range that it tells us, the range of the picture, we know the hole is deep, uh, deeper than anything we've seen uh, in our lifetimes. We know that we are starting to come out of it in many ways. We know that May is a month of growth, for example, uh, on the consumer side, on the hiring side. I think that that's probably the right picture. Uh, but again, putting a fine point on that is going to probably take years till we can actually revise and refine those estimates. Um, but I think we're moving right now in, the, in a good direction. Um, the question for me as a forecaster right now is struggling with how does this resurgence in the virus affect things? We know we're not going to shut yeah. things yeah. down to the same extent. But yet we're living with this incredibly disruptive infectious disease. So what does that do to the shape of the recovery? What does that do to uh, defaults and delinquencies and, uh, you know, the jobs picture, for example? So that's as a forecaster, that's what does that do to the shape of the recovery is what I'm grappling with right now. Julia, fantastic to get your perspective. As always, Julia Coronado there of Macro Policy Perspectives. I wish we had listened to Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley in the last couple of months, that's for sure. And I'm pleased to say we can start this morning's program with the chief equity strategist here in New York City. Mike, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. What has set you apart for me in the last couple of months is your willingness to say the recession playbook is still intact and there's nothing different about coming out of this contraction compared to all the other contractions. Mike, would that be a fair characterization? Yeah, uh, thanks, guys, uh, for having me. And, and yeah, I think that's a very fair uh, sort of, you know, way we've positioned ourselves, which is essentially, look, you have to put the blinders on a little bit when you go into a recession uh, from a financial market standpoint, because markets tend to anticipate these things. And, you know, we've been talking about this setup for over a year or two. And I think that's probably what set us apart, too, is and we, I came into this year kind of more negative than most, expecting uh, the risk of a recession being higher. So then when, of course, when it happened, you know, the market was actually already ready for that. And then we had a liquidation in, in March. And the other thing that's different this time, though, I think, is that we are in this incredible period of financial repression. And uh, that's obvious. And the one thing I've learned kind of the hard way in the last 10 years is that when risk premium appears, you just have to grab it. And that appeared in March. Uh, we've, we've written about this extensively. As you know, I mean, uh, on an equity risk premium basis, we were as cheap in March as we were in March of 2009. And you, you may say, well, how could that be? We weren't down as much. Well, because rates had fallen so much. And so markets have become, you know, uh, attuned to that. And they reacted and, and investors stepped in. And that's what we've been doing. And, and yes, the re recession playbook has been working 
as it typically does during these periods. Mike, many people anticipate the bounce that we're seeing of the economic data to flatten out later this summer. And for that reason, they're not willing to extrapolate out the recent upside surprises too far, too quickly. In fact, some people willing to disregard the bounce that we're seeing coming into the month of June. What do you say to those people when you have those conversations at the moment? Well, I mean, like you you said at the top of the show, uh, I mean, part of the reason why economic surprises are bouncing so much is because expectations, you know, collapsed. And that's also part of our view you know, you're getting a V-shaped recovery because your comparisons are just so easy. And, of course, it's going to have to flatten out now because, look, every time the data comes out better, expectations rise. So the, the bar essentially uh, get, gets, uh, gets lifted as well. So it will flatten out, but we still think the rate of change will continue to be positive um, through the rest of this year, uh, quite frankly. And we, we're not expecting us to be back to where we were in the fourth quarter of 19 until the end of next year. In other words, there's still a lot of runway from here to there for the rate of change to continue to increase. And that's what the markets will focus on. The markets will focus on as long as growth is moving forward, the market will continue to look forward. And, you know, it's, I, this is, it's really hard to think about it this way, but, you know, we're actually in a recession now that's obvious. Um, that means I don't have to worry about a recession, okay? That means the market doesn't have to worry about a recession like it was perhaps in December and January, not knowing how this is going to play out. Well, we know how it's going to play out now. It's happening and we know what the policy response is going to be. And so in some ways, you could argue, given these that stocks are long-duration assets and you've removed the immediate risk of a recession surprising us, it can actually start discounting the future in a more visible way. Mike, how do we rotate in such an unusual and particularly with a fixed income market, odd market? How do we rotate from seven or eight stocks showing, for the most part, profitability and everybody loves them in that, to those that are at a 12 multiple, a 15 multiple, dare I say, the richness of a 17 multiple. What will be the catalyst to have those stocks improve on a relative basis? Yeah, that's, a, that's the right question, and it's a great question. I think it's, it's very simple. Uh, my experience has been that when the relative earnings revision breath uh, starts to favor those cheaper companies, meaning the earnings start going up at a faster rate for those more cyclically geared companies than these, you know, wonderful secular growers. And, and you might say, so how could that possibly happen? Well, because the earnings, you know, were so lousy over the last year or two that they can actually grow faster in the short term. So those rev- and, and the expectations have come down more. You know, one of the things I worry a little bit about the work-from-home beneficiaries that, you know, did really well in the early part of this recovery is that they didn't, they didn't really lower their expectations. You know, the analysts continued to keep their expectations high, so there's just there's not as much surprise factor potentially as the economy continues to recover, and there could be a little bit of payback, quite frankly, from the the pull forward on the work from home dynamic. Mike, I got to say, one reason why I love reading your reports is your view on the short term paired with the medium and long term. Talking about last week's sell off, saying it was healthy, overdue, it could be even due for another five to seven uh, percent decline in addition. But it's a buy the dip moment. I want to talk about the risks to that outlook. One of them being the increase, potential increase in trade tensions between the U.S. and China, especially as we see Robert Lighthizer heading to Congress today. How significantly do tensions have to ratchet up for you to reassess your call? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely still a concern that's out there. I think, you know, you all mentioned it earlier, you know, the market didn't seem to be too focused on it anymore. I think the market is focused on it. It's just it's got so many things to focus on from day to day. So there's no doubt that the China, you know, U.S. trade relations are still, you know, fragile. I'd put it that way. Um, you know, and we have far from resolved 
all of the issues that have been you know, debated. And I think a phase two trade deal is pretty much off the table anytime soon. And I guess the risk now is do we roll back the phase one trade deal to some degree. Look, our view is that, uh, you know, we think phase one is okay for now. It's not at risk. Um, however, if, you know, this becomes a, uh, you know, a situation where either candidate, uh, particularly the president, can use to try and bolster their poll numbers, that's where it becomes a bigger risk. And that's probably a third quarter issue. I don't think it's an issue right now. Uh, there's other things that the, the White House is focused on uh, to try and, you know, get going in the right direction. But if they decide to use it as a lever to uh, bolster uh, the polls, uh, that's where it becomes more dangerous. Because, you know, once you go down that path and start saber-rattling again, it's hard to pull back in. So I think it's a third-quarter issue, and we got to monitor it closely. Mike Wilson, one of your joys is the fabulously concise reports of Betsy Grasick. You get to read that stuff and frame an opinion of the too-big-to-fail banks. What's the Mike Wilson view of American banking, given what you see from Ms. Grasick? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, look, banking has been a tough gig for the last uh, 10 years, and that's what you know, post-financial crisis and a period of financial repression has done. Um, uh, you know, there's two two things I think about from here. Uh, first of all, uh, we are you know constructive that the economy is going to improve, and that means the rates, the back end rates, should should move up and and increase the yield curve, which is good for you know net interest margins, and that's a that's a potentially a, a positive tailwind. I think secondarily, you know, everybody's talked about deregulation, you know, over the last few years. It hasn't really uh, led to any kind of big boost in activity, quite frankly. However, one thing I would say is different now is, you know, during the post-financial crisis period, we had what we call the shadow banks in there uh, intervening and, and, and doing their job as the, as the regulated banking system had been kind of, you know, compressed and not being able to operate as effectively for a lot of different reasons. There's a, there is a, a positive argument, I think, to be made that some of that, some of that business, you know, there could be share gains coming back towards the regulated banking system because the Fed clearly needs the banks to be operating efficiently. If they ever want to get inflation, we've got to get velocity of money up. I mean, banks are the ones who actually create, you know, real money in the economy. And so, you know, we could see a steeper yield curve. We could see some more deregulation and some share gains back. You know, that's why we're constructive. And you know, we're constructive on the American banking system having kind of a, a rebirth here as we get reflation and we have, we have a recovery. Mike Wilson, you've been constructive and so far you've been right. Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. equity strategist. Mike, always great <clears> to <throat> catch up with you, sir. My best to you and to the whole of the team. This is the way it works, folks. In London, not every month, but once or twice a year, there is a conference And if you're at the London School of Economics, it's held in some old ancient hall named after Lionel Robbins or someone else, or in their spectacular new conference center, the Sheikh Zayed Center. And Paul DeGuire walks in, who's a good friend of this program and truly one of the leading lights of fiscal analysis in Europe. And he will stand up and there'll be four or five worthies on the stage. But that's not what's important. What's important is the place is packed and there are students down the aisles, up and back, and everyone to hear a pin drop listens. And they will listen to um, Barry Eichengreen. We are thrilled that Professor Eichengreen can join us this morning for a virtual conference. He is in California at Berkeley, not in, Los, uh, not in London, at LSE, the London School of Economics. Uh, Professor Eichengreen, what is it like doing a virtual conference, it's just not the same as all those packed halls, is it? 
it really isn't the same. You uh, you can do it in your shorts. You don't get uh, you don't don't get the adrenaline rush you do uh, seeing yeah. two or three hundred faces in the audience, and it makes me worry about our pedagogy at the university. We can't really teach courses in the same way either. I totally agree. Is Berkeley going to return yet? I know Penn State, we were talking to the other day, they're returning in the fall. Has the University of California at Berkeley decided to return? We haven't decided, but I think uh, there's a very, very high uh, probability that it'll be mainly online. You will have an extraordinary panel at the London School of Economics this evening on the pandemic. What will you say, Professor Eichengreen? We have a new study that looks at the long-term political consequences of living through a pandemic. So we have data on 47 epidemics in in the past from SARS to Ebola uh, that affected in some manner upward of 120 countries. And you can see there's a long-term impact on people's trust in their government and their leaders, and it's strongly negative. If you live through a pandemic, you grow skeptical about Uh, the ability, the capacity of your institutions, can you say CDC, and your leaders to cope with those kind of threats. So, Professor, I have three children that are in that uh, age, uh, 18 to 25, that impressionable age where you start to form really strong personal opinions here. What do you think uh, the fallout will be for those folks after having dealt with this pandemic here, which, you know, we're four or five months in, who knows how long it's really going to go on for. Those are the folks for whom we really find a strong effect. So if you've lived through a pandemic uh, when, when you're in grade school, there's no lingering, persistent impact on your attitudes. If you live through one as an adult over the age of 25, there's no lingering effect either. But if you're in those impressionable years, and you know it from firsthand observation, um, that's when there are neurological changes in the brain. That's when people encounter uh, college-aged students encounter new ideas for the first time. And those are the people who grow skeptical about their, the capacity of their government to do good uh, for, for decades. Uh, Too short a visit, but Barry, one final question, if we could. Do you perceive, with all of your work in international economics, going back to the classic golden fetters and what you've done with the IMF studies and such, do you perceive a shift in America away from our economic individualism, our flavor of capitalism, or will we reaffirm the way we do capitalism? There's going to be strong pressure, I think, to have a more uh, European welfare state where we do more in terms of providing health care, elder care, child care to the populace. And the question is whether we will become more European in terms of paying taxes as well or uh, a very serious debt problem blows up instead. Mm-hmm. Oh, this has been a joy. Too short a visit. Professor Eichengreen, thank you so much. Tonight, an important conference at the London School of Economics. Barry Eichengreen, party uh, professor at uh, Berkeley. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide 
I'm Bloomberg Radio.